This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The sermon text this morning comes from Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Again, uh, just a reminder, uh, a little uh, earlier sermon, a little shorter sermon maybe today, uh, based on the fact that Trisha and I need to catch a flight uh, in order to accomplish all of our assignments in Toronto with that church planning movement we're involved with there. And in order to do all that, we had to be there by 6 o'clock. So, um, uh, again, it's my delight to preach. Unfortunately, if I haven't met you, I'll have to wait till next week to meet you. And I would look forward to that. So our sermon time together, we've been traveling through the book of Luke. We've been studying many of the passages that are only in Luke. So that means they're not uh, in the other Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, or John. And and our story this morning is primarily a a warning, okay? And, And here's the warning. While ten lepers were cleansed, verse 17, only one was saved, verse 19. The warning of the text is this. That it's possible to interact with Jesus, it's possible to know his blessings to a degree, and at the same time not receive in Jesus all that he offers in the gospel. That that it's possible to trust Jesus to a a degree, but for a time, but not actually have saving faith. It's primarily a warning. In verse 12, Jesus is entering a village, and these ten lepers, they cry out to him, and they ask him for mercy. And he offers them a healing, but the healing is contingent upon trust and faith and belief. When Jesus says in verse 14, go and show yourselves to the priests, and the priests, uh, they served as health inspectors in the Jewish community. When he said, go and show yourself to the priests, the assumption was that they would be clean when they got there. And so Luke shows that the lepers had to move before they were healed. Uh, they had to believe uh, before They were cleansed. If you look at the end of verse 14, he makes this obvious. He said, and as, or while they went, they were cleansed. So this healing took an element of trust and faith and belief in Jesus and his word. But in verses 15 and 16, we read of the one. He returns to worship God and he returns to thank Jesus. And the main point of the entire story is verses 17 to 19. Turn your eyes there. Jesus says, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? In verse 18, Jesus says the uh, the only leper that was found, passive tense, and so in Luke, if we had been going through all the chapters, you would know by now that the found or the converted, the redeemed, the saved in Luke, 
Luke 15, in particular, the prodigal son, he was lost, and then he was found. And Jesus says, was there only this one found? And then he says in verse 19, he said uh, to him, he said to the one, go, uh, rise, go your way. Your faith, in our translation it says, has made you well. Most accurately, it simply says your faith has saved you. So, so the Greek word here can mean to heal, but most often and primarily it means to save and to deliver. And so every commentator I read on the spectrum of liberal to conservative uh, says that, that Jesus is here telling this man that the depth of his faith and the extent of his faith secured him ultimate healing and ultimate salvation in Jesus. And the text is a warning that there were ten cleansed, a temporal, physical, social healing, but only one was saved an eternal, holistic, spiritual blessing. This is a consistent theme in Luke, actually. This is a consistent theme that there can be those in the visible community of faith who have a certain depth of faith, who presume themselves to be Christians who are not. For example, in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower and the soils, Jesus teaches that some will receive the word. The word is the gospel. The word is Jesus. And he says, some will believe. It's the word for faith. Some will believe for a time. But since there's no depth to their faith, they at some point fall away. Because their faith was shallow and short-lived, they had some way faith, but not saving faith. Verse 19. That was Luke 8. Luke 13, among other passages in the gospel, indicate that at the end, that there will be many who presume that they're Christians. Presume that they're, he, that they're headed into uh, eternal bliss. Um, that, that will be shocked to discover that they don't know Jesus and Jesus doesn't know them. They interacted with Jesus. They on some level benefited from Jesus. They even received and believed to a certain depth. But to whatever depth it was, it was not the depth of verse 19, saving faith. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Think about it like this. How many believers were there in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts? So at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, how many were there uh, when he ascended into heaven? The Gospels tell us that he healed scores and scores, thousands and thousands of people. How many brothers and sisters with the apostles waiting for Pentecost? 120. Many were cleansed. Many were healed, but 120 in Jerusalem with saving faith. The text is primarily a warning, and it probably ought to be a little more alarming to us than it naturally is. Let's think about it this way. The signs for saving faith, the stranger with saving faith, and the sequence of saving faith. First, the signs of saving faith. In other words, if you look at the text, what did Jesus see in this man's response to him? So this man, compared to the nine, what did Jesus see that, that brought Jesus to the conclusion that he was found, that, that he was saved and not just cleansed? What are the signs of saving faith? And I think, if you just think with me for a second here, this is why it's really, really important. Sadly, uh, we all know uh, of people in the past who were active, vibrant, seemingly faithful members of the Christian community, people who are now not in the church, not faithful, not in relationship with Jesus, not living for him, not living for his kingdom. And again, tragically and sadly, we all know folks 
like that. But I would, I, I would dare say that during their season of receiving and believing, Luke 8, that in that season, the person would have never guessed that they were going to fall away. They, they would have never thought, you know what, I bet I have some sort of faith. But it's probably not saving faith. And, and so what that tells me is that it's highly likely that some of us here today are in the same boat, but presently unaware. And so this sermon is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for all of us to give consideration to, to our lives, to see if we see these signs of saving faith in our lives. And if we see these signs, and if they're increasing, uh, that should give us great and blessed assurance and hope and peace. But if we don't see these signs, and if they're not increasing, we will, Lord willing, be highly motivated to listen to the sermon on how saving faith comes about. So I see in the text three pretty obvious signs. First, there's an interrupted life. Second, there's humble worship. And third, there's genuine gratitude. First, an interrupted life. Verse 15, then one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Verse 18, was no one found to return? It's the same Greek word as turn back. No one found to return except the Samaritan. First, an interrupted life. Look, look at verse 12. And as Jesus entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. So leprosy was a term for, for several skin diseases. Some were more deadly than others. Some were more contagious than, than others. In the ancient Near East, when a rash or a boil or a sore would develop on a person's skin, they were labeled with this broad category of leprosy, and they were expelled from the community, and they were consigned to the leper colony that was just outside the city or the village gates. And they, they, were, they, they just had to stay there, and they just had to wait, and, and they just had to see was was whatever on their skin, was it going to get better or, or was it going to get worse? Did they have some version of leprosy that was going to take their life or something that just happened and is normal and would go away? Literally, once diagnosed, whether self-diagnosed or diagnosed by the priest, they could not and they would not touch or embrace their family. They would immediately leave the city and they would live there, living out their days hoping to improve. If you were a leper in a leper colony, you defined life this way. I want to receive a clean bill of health from the priest so that I can get back to my family and get back to my house and get back to my job. Think about verse 15 with the one. The one was saving faith. When he realizes what has happened to him and when he realizes who Jesus was, he stopped. He turned back and he fell down at Jesus' feet. He was successfully on the path of his previously conceived notion of life, but his life was radically interrupted. His definition of life and his definition for life was changed in an instant. Think about it with me. The nine saw Jesus as a means to an end. The one, Jesus became his end. For the nine, Jesus was a way to get the life they wanted. For the one, Jesus became the life he wanted. Sign number one of saving faith, an interrupted life. Has our lives, have our lives been interrupted? A couple of questions. Do we, like the nine, see Jesus as a compassionate healer, or do we, like the one, see him as a commanding king who also compassionately heals? Are, are we cool with Jesus until he starts to mess with what we define as life? Or do we trust Jesus to tell us what is truly life-giving? 
If you were to go back to the parable of the sower and the soils in Luke 8, it's also found in Matthew 13. The description for the one who receives and believes for a time but falls away, uh, that one walks away when Christianity makes their life hard. An unwillingness to have an interrupted life. That's the first sign. The second sign of saving faith is humble worship. Verse 15, he turned back, praising God, with a loud voice. So I want you to imagine the scene. The one is moving towards the priest with the ten. As he goes, at some point, he's healed. And once healed, he turns and he starts yelling praises to God. And we're to assume uh, that the nine heard him, uh, understood what he's doing, and decided to not go with him. Instantly became a man in the humble place of being countercultural, living a radically different life. The word praise, in verses 15 and 18, at its core, means opinion. It means the voicing of an opinion. And in the New Testament, it's always a positive opinion when it's used, and so that's, what, that's why the translations use the term praise. It's, it's a positive opinion. In, in verse 13, he lifted up his voice when he was seeking healing, but in verse 15, this man's loud voice was now employed in the praise and the exaltation of the worth and the value of the beauty and the glory of God. Sign number two for the presence of saving faith is humble worship in our lives. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Remember, heart worship in the Bible is usually expressed in physical ways. Arms raised, knees bowed, Hands applauding, voices shouting, tears flowing, faces to the ground in worship. A few questions. Does the watching world, regardless of what they choose, know our opinion about Jesus? When we get the chance to look at Jesus and to see him and to worship him, uh, is our posture cool, calm, and collected? Or is our heart's humble posture before the Lord displayed in our bodies on his face at Jesus' feet? Third sign of saving faith is genuine gratitude. If you look at verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, now the Greek word here is so much more about the presence of thanksgiving than it is about the act of giving thanks. It simply means to be Grateful. It is not southern and polite. It is not sit down and write a thank you note. It's to actually have gratitude in the heart that must be released. A few questions. Are we, let's just think about our prayer lives for example. Are we telling God what we have to have in the future? Or are we communicating thanksgiving for what he has done in the past? Do we step into life Content and joyful and hopeful because of all that he has done, all that he promised to do? Or are we grumpy and tense, anxious and sullen, focused on what God has to do for us to be happy? Three signs of saving faith. So again, these are just three markers in the life of the one compared to the nine. The main point of the text, if you missed it for the introduction, is this, that not all faith is saving faith. That a person can have beneficial interaction with Jesus for a season of life and not necessarily be with Jesus forever. 
And in light of this reality, Luke offers us at least three, these three signs that indicate the presence of saving faith. An interrupted life, humble worship, and genuine gratitude. Now, second, let's think about the one. Let's think about the stranger with saving faith. And, and this is going to be really quick. This is where we're going to save some time. Okay? In, in the story... Luke continues to show that outsiders and outcasts are not only valued by the king, but they tend to more readily receive the king with saving faith. Just look at the text from 50,000 feet. You can't actually do that, but that just means from a higher perspective, okay? Uh, Luke works hard to make it obvious to us that this guy's a Samaritan. Verse 11, Jesus was traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. At the end of verse 16, the phrase, now he was a Samaritan, is given as the final clause, and in the Greek, it's placed in the position of emphasis. It's, it's supposed to be shocking to us. Jesus, in verse 18, points out that the one is a, quote, foreigner. It's just a word for an outsider. The Old King James Version calls him a stranger. And since good sermons are alliterated, it's the stranger with saving faith. I have a problem. I'm going to an alliteration anonymous meeting later. <laughs> what have we covered in previous sermons? Galilee, uh, comprised of Jews. Samaria, populated by Samaritans. They hated each other. The one Samaritan is living with the nine Jews only because of his leprosy. And what you have here is a community of ten outsiders, and only the racial outsider, only the double-cursed, responds with saving faith. There is a biblical teaching that is in all of the Bible that is emphasized in Luke that outsiders and outcasts, compared to insiders, are more apt to receive Christ with saving faith. That we are more apt to use Jesus as a means to an end if we're an insider, and we're more apt to receive Jesus as the end when we're an outsider. Think about it. If the sky is the limit on, on the cultural potential of your life, how hard will it be to turn back? Very. But if the culture has oppressed you and marginalized you, it's much easier to turn back to Jesus. All I'm saying is this, that if an interrupted life is a sign of saving faith, we're a lot more open to the idea of having our lives interrupted if we're outsiders, if we're not rich and sexy and successful and full of cultural potential. And so it seems to me as we inspect our lives for these signs of faith, we may be wise to remember that it's really hard for the rich and the powerful, for the prominent and the dominant, to receive Christ with saving faith. It's just what the Bible says. It's easier for us in our positions of power to use him. It's another thing altogether to bow before him in worship. Finally, for this morning, some consideration to the sequence of saving faith. Let's say that you, like me, are sobered by the fact that thousands were healed and 120 were saved. That's alarming. Uh, what if the signs of saving faith in your life and my life, what if they're not as pronounced and as obvious as we'd like them to be? What if I see some gratitude in my life, but only as much gratitude as I, as I see discontentment and anxiety? What, what if I see some worship in my life, but not publicly humbling worship? What if you, like me, are sobered by the fact that you're a cultural insider? I'm an educated white male from the South. 
I grew up in a family with resources. I, I have grown up with so much opportunity, and Luke teaches me as I parent my children that the Bible teaches that the cultural advantage can actually be a disadvantage when it comes to saving faith in Jesus. It's not that insiders can't be saved, it's just biblically, it's less likely than an outsider. Let's say the text has us a little concerned. Where do we go from here? I want to play a game. I'm going to describe a scene, I'm going to try a snapshot, and I want you in your mind, this is not, this is too big of a room for you to shout out in case you're wrong, it'll be humbling for you, but in your mind just tell me what happened right before the scene that I'm describing, Okay. First, the jumbotron, the big screen uh, at the ball game. Okay, it shows a woman. She's jumping up and down. She has tears in her eyes, and she's saying yes, and I will over and over and over. What just happened to her to elicit that response from her? Okay, you guys said it out loud. So you're right. If you said her, her now fiancé asked her to marry him after years of dating, you were right. That's what happened, Okay. You get the game? Here's another one. Five kids are in their pajamas. They're in their wintery pajamas. They're jumping up and down, squealing with delight, saying thank you, thank you, thank you, over and over and over. What happened to them to elicit that response from them? Christmas. And they found that one box still under the tree that's barking, okay? <laughs> All right, last one. An exhausted and unshaved 34-year-old male is looking through glass. Joyful tears in his eyes, and you can almost see in his brain the sacrificial changes to his life that he's gladly about to make. Where is he? What happened to him to draw that response from him? He's looking at God's gift to him in the newborn nursery at Winnie Palmer, and he's looking at that little thing that he prayed for for years. And just naturally, he's ready to love and sacrifice. What's the point? You can't just decide to be genuinely and radically emotional on the jumbotron at a public event for no apparent reason. Something significant, something from the outside has to happen to my five kids for all of them to be internally elated at the same time. You don't just joyfully and gladly decide to make sacrificial and expensive, uh, expensive changes to your life and your career and your path without something radical happening to you to provoke those changes in you. The sequence of saving faith. You don't just say, I don't see a lot of radical changes in my life, so this week I'm going to do some radical things. You can't just put up a repeated event in, in your iCal that pops up and says, be thankful. That's not going to work. You can write a thank you note, but you can't be thankful. Okay, in our response to this text and to this sermon, okay, uh, if our response is, okay, I have not yet raised my hands in worship, and that's exactly what I'm going to do for the closing song. <laughs> You've missed the point. That's not the point of the text. That violates the sequence of the text. Think about the word se- what, what the word sequence means. It means this, a particular order in which related events follow each other. A particular order in which related events follow each other. So these three are not works that we have to do to be saved. They're signs that we are saved. Look at verse 15 with me. What happened to the Samaritan leper that brought about in him these signs? Okay? Then one of them, when he saw 
that he was healed. Passive verb. He turned back. He praised God. He fell at Jesus' feet, expressing gratitude. The sequence is this. The leper begs for mercy. Jesus compassionately and miraculously heals him. And what the leper saw in Jesus and what the leper saw in what Jesus did for him, it radically changed his life. If we don't see in our lives the signs of saving faith, or if we don't see uh, the extent of those signs in our lives that we'd like to see, our efforts will be fruitless if we simply and only study this passage as signs for saving faith. Instead, we have to know the sequence. We, we, we have to go to this passage and see what Jesus has done for us, and, and we have to go to this passage and see what Jesus has done to us. And we have to let that reality impact us and provoke us, and we have to stay there until we're grateful, until we're worshiping, until giving him our life makes absolute sense. We're going to sing in a moment about what Jesus has done. We're going to talk about it more in communion, but let me just summarize it like this. What can we see in this passage? First, God took on skin and became a man. Second, as a man, Jesus lived a perfect and a beautiful and a merciful life. If you were reading through Luke, you would know that at this point, Jesus is encountering so much opposition. And as he moves forward into the opposition, he continues to bless, he continues to serve, he continues to heal. He is not just taking care of those who follow him or those who will follow him. He's taking care of the very ones who in a, in a moment, if you will, will yell out, crucify him. That is a beautiful life. Third, the all-powerful God and the righteous man, verse 11, is on his way to Jerusalem. Again, if you were reading through Luke, you would know from chapter 9 forward, Luke is presenting Jesus on this intentional journey to Jerusalem. He is heading there. He has told everyone, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And so Luke, every now and then, will just remind you He's on his way to Jerusalem. The name of the village, unimportant. Can you imagine writing about this and not putting the name of the village? Where he was on that border between Samaria and Galilee, unimportant. What was important? On his way to Jerusalem, to die on the cross so that we could be saved by grace through faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. First of all, we thank you that you love your enemy. We thank you that you bless and give mercy to and send rain on everyone on earth. We thank you that even though we have stolen this life from you, you continue to allow us to breathe. We thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, your love, your compassion, your grace. We thank you that, that for the joy set before you of having us forever, you took on skin and lived for us and died for us. Jesus, would you arrest us with your gospel? Would you inflame our hearts with your love? Would you open our eyes to all that you have done so that it just makes sense to give you our lives in worship? Lord, would you interrupt us? Would you put gratitude in us? 
Would you release us to worship like that that we will experience forever in the new heavens and the new earth? Jesus, we do praise you. We do come with the one to your feet, worshiping you for all that you are and all that you've done.